Hello, this is How to PhD Season 2, Episode 3. This week we are going to be talking about the hidden secrets of journal publishing. Hello everybody and welcome back to the show. My name is Aaron and I'm really excited to share this episode with you uh, this week. Although I'm usually excited to share the the content, um, but this one I think especially so because it's all about journal publications. And I think you'd have to say that probably journal publications are probably the cornerstone of an academic career, right? It's the the metric that a lot of academics, rightly or wrongly, um, it's one of the metrics that is really used to determine sort of how you progress in academia. Uh, but that said, you know, not all PhDs need it. Now, of course, if you're a PhD by publication, then you have very strict requirements on kind of how many you need to achieve. And certainly different countries have different uh, attitudes towards uh, whether you need to publish during your PhD. Here in the UK, it's typically a bit more relaxed, but, you know, if you can get a publication, that's not a bad thing. It's, it's a great boost, but usually it's not a requirement. So just bear that in mind and kind of, you know, be aware of your circumstances. Um, and for me personally, you know, I was only able to publish right at the very, very end. So I actually had the paper uh, accepted and in print I think in the last month of my doctorate. Um, in comparison, Julia had hers published, I think after the first year she had a publication. Um, I'm sure she will correct me when she hears this episode. Um, but the point is there's many different ways to do it. And so just be aware of your circumstances and what's the requirements. Um, but the key thing is, you know, unless it's explicitly stated by your PhD requirements, the main focus should be the thesis. Um, but it's worth doing uh A few little extra things if you do have the chance to publish. Some of these tips that we're going to share with you today will just give you that little bit of an extra edge. Um, And not all journals are the same. So this week we're going to talk about some of the most important things you need to know about journal publication. So let's get going. And to start, it's all about the importance of understanding that not all journals are equal. So not all journals are the same quality. Uh, And so to suss out which journals are good quality and which are bad quality, there are a range of metrics that are published which help us determine exactly how good a journal is. Uh, And one of the key metrics is something called impact factor. Now you might have heard of this before, but effectively impact factor is the annual mean number of citations that articles published in that journal in the last two years have received. Okay, so that's a total mouthful, but in effect, it tells you in the last two years um, of articles, you know, what's the average number of citations per article that they published. Um, So it begins to give you a good idea of kind of you know, if you publish in that journal, you know, how many citations are you going to get? Because in the end, citations where people, other people reference your work is one of, is a good indication of the kind of quality of the journal and how other academics think of the quality of that work, right? And if it's good quality, then it typically gets good citations or a good number of citations. Uh, So it's, it's, it's one of the useful metrics. The key thing with impact factor though, and this is, this is where it's, you know, really important to and, and this is exactly why we're doing this episode to try and you know explain the meaning behind some of these numbers. But impact factor really depends on the field that you're working in. So in some fields, you know, good impact factors are typically around 
uh, a number of three to five will be the number that you see for impact factor. In other more specific fields or more specialized fields, it might be as low as one to two is a good impact factor. And so certainly in my field in the automotive space, if you get impact factors of kind of four, five, that's that's pretty good. Um, and I know in of, of other areas where impact factors are lower. And really the, the best way to understand kind of what is a uh, you know good impact factor for your field is really to go into your reference list, go into the papers that you frequently look at or look at the publications from the top authors in your field and have a look at which journals that they typically publish in uh, and then check the impact factor of those journals. Um, and this will give you a good idea of kind of what the level you need to aim for is um, for your field. And so, you know, when you're considering which journals to submit to, you know, just do a simple calculation, find these impact factors and simply start by submitting to the highest one that you can find for your field. Uh, and of course, which matches the aims and scopes of that particular journal. Um, but, you know, it can be a little bit tricky to work out what is a good impact factor, right? Because you might have found out what a good journals, but there might be a range of impact factors and it might not always necessarily mean that a lower impact factor if it's if, if if a good impact factor in your field is three to five and the journal is kind of 2.9 does that mean it's not good it there's a little bit of nuance there so there's another metric which you can use in conjunction with impact factor called the quartile metric now Quartiles uh, are essentially there are four quartiles as the name suggests uh, and this tells you how the journal ranks in its particular field. So this is really useful um, because it takes into account what field you're looking at. And so Q1, so quartile one journals are the best and that goes down to quartile four, uh, which are not so good. And so I would say again, your strategy for submitting to journals should be to aim to go for Q1 journals um, as a first port of call um, and keep trying Q1s until you really can't you know, if, if they continually get rejected from Q1s and you get to maybe the fourth or fifth journal you've submitted to, then you can start considering Q2. But as a good strategy, start with Q1, you know, really back your work and, and go for the higher quartiles that, that you have in, in your particular field. And a good website to use to try and find this information is called, and I have no idea how you're meant to pronounce this, but it's Schemago, so S-C-I-M-A. Geo, and we'll have a link uh, to this website on the show notes at howtophd.show. Um, but that website, you can type in the name of the journal that you're considering submitting to, uh, and you can see what quartile that journal is. And really cool thing is that you can also see its historical quartile performance. So you can see if it's just recently a Q1 journal or if it's been a Q1 journal for many, many years. And again, a journal which has been a, in that Q1 bracket for many years is a Yes, that's pretty well established. Um, but that's not to say a newly Q1 journal um, or newly appointed Q1 journal is bad. Um, but again, it just gives you a little bit more context as to, you know, what the, the kind of journal that you're submitting to. Um, and me personally, I prefer looking at quartiles just because it, it does the work of taking your field into account. Um, so I think there are other metrics that come out, but I think if you if you use impact factor and quartiles, generally in my experience, I think you're on a you have enough information there to be able to tell if it's a it's a worthwhile journal or not. Again, there are 
as I said, there are many other metrics, but I think these two are the ones to keep in your back pocket. Um, and if you can't, if you still can't make sense of whether a journal is good or not from these two metrics, then you can consider the others. But personally, I think if you have those two impact factor and quartiles, then I think you'll be pretty fine. And the whole reason we want to look at these metrics is to avoid what's called predatory journals. Now, the key thing here is don't ever be tempted by a predatory journal. Now, these are journals with next to no journal metrics, no impact factor. They might not even be properly on the quartile rankings. Um, and a good, you know, essentially these journals exist and they will contact you to ask you, hey, do you have any papers to submit? You can pay this fee and you can just publish in our journal and we'll publish it. Um, and a good red flag for this is that if you get an email from one of these predatory journals, as I'm sure you might have received, it will say something like, dear professor, even though you're not a professor, uh, dear professor Ullahanan, um, we would love to invite you to submit to this journal where we can, and, and oftentimes it might not even be in your field, right? So I've received many emails to submit to medical journals, which have nothing to do with my field of work, um, but they are just fishing for that uh, publication fee. Don't ever be tempted for this. It can end up really damaging your research portfolio. Um, it ends up costing a lot of money. Uh, so it's really, it's it's just not worth it. And yes, getting journal rejections, as we've talked about in season one, journal rejections is hard, it's difficult, and you know no one likes that. Um, but then this alternative of then just submitting to a predatory journal, it's just not worth it. So I really implore you, don't ever go down that route um, and use those metrics to suss out uh, journals which might be on this kind of, um, with these kinds of motivations. Uh, and a good website, again, which we'll have a link to in howtophd.show at the show notes on the website, is a tool called thinkchecksubmit.org. And this is really useful checklist and guidance uh, on identifying a quality journal. So this will give you a little bit more information than we've covered. Um, but generally, if you look at impact factor, if you look at the quartile, then you'll be a pretty on a pretty good path to ensuring that you will be submitting to a journal which is uh, reputable and worth your time and effort. So now that you have a good idea of which journals you submit to, you need to start working on your paper. And one of the key questions when it comes to papers, which can be a little bit contentious, is authorship. And that's what we're going to talk about next. So let's talk about the unwritten rules of authorship. Now, this can be a little bit contentious for the reasons that we're going to talk about in this section. But generally, um, there is a hierarchy to the positions of authors on a paper. And when we say positions, what we mean is who is, um, you know, when you look at the paper, what's the order of the authors? In what order do they appear? And generally, the, the best positions are first, second, and then last. Um, and everything in the middle is is pretty much not really worthwhile um, or not worth not 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 worthwhile uh, but rather they are less important and will have less impact on your on that person's uh, publication portfolio um, and so let's go through some of these positions so when we talk about first author really what we're talking about is someone there who is considered to have done the most amount of work on the paper so that 
is really, I would say, you know, heavily involved in writing it up, heavily involved in actually conducting the experimentation, um, designing the experiment. You know, it's really the person who led the work and, and, and that should be, oftentimes that's pretty clear. You might get collaborative projects where it's a little less clear who is going to be first, but generally, particularly speaking from your own perspective as a doctoral candidate, um, you know, certainly any work that you are publishing that's come from your thesis, you 100% should be first author because you are the ones doing that work, right? Um, so that's really important. Don't get pushed into accepting another authorship position if this is work that's directly coming from your thesis, okay? So that's really important. And Important to know that first author really is the most valuable thing uh, for you um, or for anyone that's that's on that paper. So that's first. And second authorship is still a very, very good position. Um, it's just potentially the person who is more the supervisor. So typically your direct supervisor, so the person that you're working with who's doing your supervisions on a, a weekly or monthly basis is typically second author. Um, and then last author, which uh, sounds counterintuitive, but the last position is actually also another high value position. And this is typically the person who funded it all. Um, but in reality, they might not have done anything at all on that piece of work except fund it. Now, is that right? Um, well, technically, no, because there are now quite strict rules or guidance or suggestions around kind of what a person needs to contribute to be able to be listed on the authorship. Um, but... This is kind of the way academia works right now. And it's very difficult to change that, particularly if you're in the position as a, as a PhD candidate. Um, it's one of those that you can't really do much about. And so on a lot of my papers, I have uh, the kind of professor of the, the, the key professor of the department who essentially just funded the work. Uh, and particularly my doctorate, I had authors who were from my industrial sponsor who had next to no influence at all on the work I did, but because they're funding it, there they are in the last author position. So that's what that means. Um, but, you know, bear in mind, a lot of journals nowadays will ask for what's called a contribution statement, which is a kind of standardized list of things that you can declare that someone did. Um, now, it's it is a difficult balance when you're trying to work out who should be on the authorship list. And particularly if you're on a project where a lot of people are trying to jump onto the paper and, and you know, um, just get their name on another paper. Uh, and so this is something where you have to be a little bit careful. You don't want to upset or annoy people. And I find the best way to avoid any kind of conflicts about authorship is to set that up and, and lay out those expectations really clearly from the beginning. So one of the first things if you're working on a collaborative project or you're doing an experiment which is perhaps not directly to do with your PhD and perhaps you you are uh, helping another group or a team or researcher is right at the beginning to lay out and ask the question, look, if we when we publish from this work, who, who what's going to be the authorship and uh, what's the order of authorship? And I want to be recognized as second author or I wish to be uh, first author or third author, whatever it may be, lay out those expectations and get those conversations started early on. And you'll be surprised how 
uh, little, it's discussed at the beginning of a project and it will come up awkwardly once the paper is written and then someone has to make a call and it, it can get a little bit um, a little bit contentious. So it is a difficult balance, but knowing the authorship order can help you know your worth and will help you recognize if someone is not treating you fairly. So bear that in mind. If you have done the work, then you should 100% be first author, particularly if it's directly to do with your doctorate. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of a background into the kind of background politics of authorship orders, which is it's a silly topic and it really, we should be streaming, streamlining that and making it more transparent. But unfortunately, it's just the way things are at the moment. So uh, maybe it will hopefully change in the future. So you've got your authorship sorted. You've got your, uh, you've chosen your journal. Now let's talk a little bit about the submission process. So the submission process, it's one of those legendary things in academia, which is, uh, it's its highly competitive, it's highly subjective as well. As you know, you know, you send your paper in, and again, if you've chosen a good journal, which has good metrics, as Q1, as a good impact factor for your field, um, then it will nearly always be a peer-reviewed process, where other academics will look at your paper uh, and they'll review it and essentially give you feedback and decide whether or not it gets accepted or not. Um, it is an incredibly draining and competitive process, so do not be disheartened by it. Um, and if you ever get rejected, or which is very likely to happen that you'll get rejected from journals, I've been rejected from journals many times, as we've talked about in the past. Uh, in fact, just this month, I've been rejected from a journal that I've submitted to. Um, so don't be disheartened. It's just part of the process. And there's also a lot of noise in the process, as in people's you know, these reviewers' opinions can often change, and you might just be unlucky and have a reviewer who just doesn't like your work and that's just kind of the way it fell and it's an unfortunate consequence um but the peer review process as 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 many flaws as it has it's really the best way we have of determining the quality of the work that goes to a journal so the key thing is what you want is really for them to be getting to your content, right? And and getting to the point where they've read the content and if they don't like it then, then fair enough, you take their comments and you get to, you get back to your metrics and find a new journal. But what you don't want is to be rejected on things like formatting and basic journal requirements. So one of the key things is take the time to read journal requirements before you even start writing the paper. So have an idea as to, you know, what's kind of the formatting uh, process that they're expecting. You know, are they expecting it to be in their template? Are they happy to accept it as a unformatted Word document? Um, know these requirements right from the start. Look at their aims and scope. So all journals will have a page where they talk about their aims and scope and make sure, um, if you remember from the last episode, all the keywords that they mention in that aims and scope, make sure that's in your journal as well, right? So in the abstract and the title, get some of those keywords in there as well that they talk about in their aims and scope of the journal. And of course, you can ask your supervisor if they know of the editors, if they know of any kind of deals. Now, often um, good journals as well will offer uh, what's called APC um, 
uh, deals. So this is uh, article processing charges. So these are the charges that a journal uh, asks you to pay once your journal has been accepted. And often they will uh, offer discounts or kind of uh, zero article processing charge offers uh, if you submit within a certain time window. Um, and this usually aligns up to they're looking for a particular set of papers or a particular topic. And so it's kind of incentivizing researchers. Um, look, if you have work in this area, please do submit it to us and we'll give you this deal. So often that's your supervisor will know of those kinds of deals because it's very likely they will be on the editorial boards for different journals and they get uh, this kind of um, these kinds of uh, this kind of information. Um, and so it can help you just get past that first step of desk rejection, right? And so when we say desk rejection, what we mean is when you submit the journal and it's rejected before it even gets to peer review. Uh, and so if you tick off some of these things like the formatting, ensuring that you're aligned with the aims and scope, it can help you just streamline that process and get past that first hurdle. So now that we've talked about the submission process, let's talk about the final aspect of uh, the hidden world or the secret world of journal publishing, uh, which is citations. So you've published now, you've got your paper in, it's been accepted, you've been through the rigors of uh, peer review and responding to comments. Um, congratulations, but now comes the final stage and often we forget about this but this is all about actually getting your work read and cited right and a lot of the stuff we talked about in the previous episode around choosing the right keywords the whole aspect behind that was to get your work noticed and to get it optimized in terms of getting it in front of people um, but you can actually be proactive in marketing your paper so ResearchGate is a pretty great way to share new work around your network and I think it's very useful uh, to post on there and to give um, a little bit of context and a bit of background and be willing to sort of share the paper with anyone who requests it very useful way to send papers out which is ResearchGate. LinkedIn is also really good nowadays for sharing uh, work stuff so you know maybe maybe make it more marketable so do you have an interesting diagram do you have a graph from your paper so you know pull that out put that in as an image on your post um, pull some cool quotes you know make it interesting you know think from a sort of marketing perspective um, what would make you click on the link for your paper right is there is there something is there like a one-liner result from a paper that would just drag uh, you know draw people in and, and make them click on that link and, you know, I think look, in the end, uh, by getting people, more people to read your paper, what you're hoping for is that one of them is inspired to then cite your work. And, you know, formal citation metrics are important. So if you think about other work in your department, um, you know, if there's a genuine place where your work could be cited, then offer it up. So just think about, are there projects happening in your department? Are there uh, people working on things? Do you have a colleague, you know, who sits next to you, who's working on a paper and it's in the same field and you just notice, hey, look, um, you know, I see in your background, uh, you're, you're going to be talking about this and this. Uh, do you mind citing my paper? I found these results, which might help strengthen your argument. So I think, you know, it's fine to offer up your paper to citations. And I think if, as long as you do it in a kind of, in a genuine, helpful way, not just trying to squeeze in your citation, you know, whatever, uh, but actually genuinely offering up your paper for citations um, can, can, can certainly be 
uh, a good thing. And self-citing is also possible. It feels a little bit dirty, right? So when we say self-citing, that means, let's say you've published and now you're writing a new paper and then in your background, you cite yourself, right? It, it, again, it's, it feels weird, especially if you have a, a guilty conscience like that, uh, but it's it's just a dumb thing in academia. Um, and just be genuine about it. So don't squeeze in all of your citations. But if, again, genuinely your work helps support a particular argument, then definitely cite it because you've done that work and it's out there in the public domain. Um, so, so cite it. Um, and, of course, if you're peer-reviewing, and again, I think there's a kind of fine line here to walk between being a little bit sleazy and being a genuine, you know, upstanding academic. Um, but you can, of course, if you're peer reviewing work uh, in the context of a journal and, you know, you are reading a paper and you think that the background, again, could benefit from a citation from your work or you have a good argument which you think could support the paper, then don't be afraid to offer up the paper. And I think the key thing about this is when you're writing the feedback and you're submitting it to a journal and, and to the author who submitted the paper, um, make it an offer of a citation. So say, look, um, I think this piece of work by Ulahanan et al um, would help strengthen this argument uh, and could help you know, boost your background or literature or this particular argument that you're making. Uh, do not make it a condition. So don't say something like, you know, you must cite this work, otherwise I will reject the paper. Uh, that's definitely not a good thing. But then offering it up in a genuine way, I think, is is always useful. And of course, you know, it, it in the end will help benefit their work as well. So that will hopefully uh, help boost your citation. So I think that's covered everything to do with journal publications. So we've covered a lot of things uh, all the way from uh, deciding kind of what are good metrics and identifying the key things. So remember, quartiles and impact factor are typically the ones to go for. Avoid those predatory journals. You want to avoid them at all costs. Always consider the order of authorship right at the beginning. Um, take heart from the take heart that the submission process is difficult for everybody no matter how experienced an academic you are and of course once you've published the work doesn't stop there and do that little bit of extra work to get your work marketed uh, and to help drive those citations to your work and get it in front of people um, which will hopefully again be reciprocated in citations So thank you for listening to another episode of How to PhD. If you know someone who could benefit from these hidden secrets of journal publications, uh, then please do share it with them. Uh, and of course, if you enjoy listening to How to PhD and you'd like to support us, then you can leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts or Spotify uh, or Audible even, or support us uh, with a donation at Buy Me a Coffee. Um, thank you so much to everybody who supported the show. Uh, we're hugely grateful for all of the generous donations that we receive and all of the support. If you're interested in signing up to a one-to-one -one session, then one-to-one -one at howtophd.show is the email address for that. Uh, if you just want to get in touch with us and have a chat, then contact at howtophd.show is the email address. And you can also get in touch over Twitter and Instagram at howtophd.show. 
show. Next week, we are going to be talking about important habits you need to help finish your PhD. So some really uh, exciting little tips there. And again, lots of things that I wish I knew at the start of my doctorate, which we are going to share with you next week. So in the meantime, take care. Thank you again for listening and we will see you all next time.